Welcome to the Kingo Podcast, where we interview published authors, screenwriters, and story consultants to answer the question, what makes a great story? If you're enjoying the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. Let's start today's show. Let's start today's show with a few writing tips. If you'd like to get these tips daily, we post them on Kingo.com and on our social media accounts with the username Kingo Creative. Here's a storytelling tip about striking at a character's fear. We want to consistently create story disruptions that remind the protagonist of what they fear most. This is how we poke a character or force them to confront their fear or lie. We constantly remind them of it. We always force it to be the thing on the top of their mind. We want to show them, this is what you could become. So how do we do that? One method is to use clones. We show other characters going through some form of what the protagonist fears. We want to show a clone who reminds the protagonist of themselves. This is a key element of the Office episode, Grief Counseling. Michael is told that his old boss, Ed Truck, has died. Michael's great fear is loneliness. His character spine is to seek approval and love. When Michael sees how little effect Ed Truck's death seems to have on the office, he's concerned. Michael is imagining himself in Ed's position. In effect, Ed Truck is the clone character who reminds Michael of his great fear. This situation has the added benefit of generating subtext. When Michael is ostensibly distraught over Ed Truck's passing, he's actually concerned about the prospect of his own death and that it's possible no one would care. Michael lashes out as he says, We are talking about honoring a man who gave his life as regional manager of this company, Jan. He later says, There's something wrong with you. There is something wrong with everybody in here because we have lost a member of our family and you don't want to talk about it. You don't want to think about it. You just want to get back to work. Here's a storytelling tip about bringing a character to life. We can bring a character to life by first defining their character engine. A character engine consists of a few elements, a void, a spine, a moral weakness, a moral need, and a desire. A void is the emptiness inside a character, often resulting from an obsession, a lie, or some past trauma. It's the feeling that something is missing. A character's spine is the drive to fill, or in some cases validate, that void. As Andrew Stanton puts it, the spine is an inner motor, a dominant unconscious goal that the character is striving for. It's an itch that they just can't scratch. The character is always working, whether they know it or not, to attempt to fill their void. Stanton offers a few examples of character spines. Michael Corleone's spine is to please his father. Wally's spine is to find the beauty. Woody's is to do what's best for his child. In Finding Nemo, Marlon's spine is to prevent harm. These characters all take action to attempt to fill an emptiness within themselves. The spine of a character might also be thought of as their strategy or default action. It's the action that a character repeatedly takes. A moral weakness is the way in which a character is morally deficient. It's the way in which they explicitly or implicitly harm others around them. Of course, not all characters have moral weaknesses. Some characters are innocent and embody moral goodness. The moral need is what the character needs to learn in order to live a more fulfilled life. It's often the need to learn to heal their moral weakness. A character's desire is an explicit, concrete desire that they pursue over the course of the story. 
This desire often consciously or subconsciously grows out of the character's spine, which is the desire to fill their void. Sometimes this central desire is simply to avoid having to confront one's void, as in the case of Will in Good Will Hunting. Once we've defined a character's engine, we start to see how to best attack their weakness. We can force the character to confront the emptiness inside of them. We can then show them that responding with their moral weakness will not fix the emptiness inside of them. Consider defining your character's engine, then consider how the events of your story will force your character to come to terms with what's missing in their life. And finally, here's a storytelling tip about strategic dialogue. Paul Galino defines subtext differently than other writing teachers. He talks about good dialogue being driven by action. Characters have an unspoken strategy that they're pursuing, and their words are in service of that strategy. He defines subtext as that underlying strategy. In a recent interview with Film Courage, Gulino says, It isn't dialogue unless there's action under it. There's this concept of subtext in dialogue. I use the term in a way different from pretty much everybody else. The traditional version of subtext, I've never found it to be very helpful. I get the idea. You want to say things without saying it, otherwise it's too on the nose. But I think it's more useful to think of subtext as the underlying verb. What am I doing? What am I doing in the scene? Dialogue is action with words. That's all it is. It's somebody doing something, but they're using words instead of physical action. And so it's a useful thing when we have a scene that's already written to see whether we can reduce each line of dialogue to a verb. And the kind of verbs you're looking for are the things like attack, defend, deflect, persuade, seduce. These are the kind of verbs you want the lines to have. You don't want to explain because it's emotionally neutral. If you have a dialogue, how are you today? And the person says, well, I didn't sleep much last night. That's Q&A. But if you have a character who says, you look like hell, and they say, well, I didn't sleep much last night. Now you've got attack, defend. You transform it into something that actually moves. It's dynamic. We're following action. In his book Story, McKee breaks down a scene in Casablanca by reducing it to a series of beats between Rick and Ilsa. Each beat consists of a character strategy. For instance, we get an exchange of protecting, rejecting, apologizing, rejecting, excusing, and rejecting. Consider what strategy your character is trying to enact with their words. Subtext is a verb. One last note before we start the show. We've got a full writing thesaurus at Kingo, made with writers in mind. Using a writing thesaurus can be a great way to explore new story worlds, character traits, and character descriptions. You can find it at kingo.com forward slash thesaurus. And now, let's get to the interview. Today's guest is Jeremy Wechter. Jeremy is an award-winning filmmaker, screenwriter, script consultant, and teacher. He wrote and directed the supernatural cyber-thriller E-Demon, for which he won Best Director at the New York Horror Film Festival. And he also teaches screenwriting at Gotham Writers Workshop and acting at the New York Conservatory for Dramatic Arts. Jeremy, thank you so much for being on the show. I appreciate you taking the time. Oh, thank you so much for having me, Ross. So I wanted to ask you a couple of questions. I know you are a director and a screenwriter and a producer and a teacher and a script consultant. So you've got some great story wisdom that we'd love to get into. And I said my first question would be, do you have a particular process for coming up with story ideas? Um, my biggest tip for coming up with story ideas is whenever you have them, write them down. Whether you're in the middle of the subway, you're in the middle of a shower or walking down the street, because 
you you it's highly likely that you will forget. And what I do is I I have a document that literally has a list of over 200 ideas. And I call I kind of think of them as seedlings and I plant them in the document. And some of those seedlings become a sentence, some of them become a page, some of them become 30 pages, and some of them eventually become like full-fledged screenplays. And at any given point, they're sort of at various levels of uh, development. I mean, the truth is people can get ideas from anywhere. People can get ideas from an idea from a, from a character point of view and not necessarily have a story for this character and eventually have to figure out that or vice versa. They might have a really cool, like, concept for a story and then the characters will evolve from there. Sometimes people have a theme that works for them. Sometimes people just have a title. I know Spike Lee says that uh, that uh, he had the title for Do the Right Thing First, like literally just the title, like no story, no characters, and everything sort of uh, stemmed from there. Interesting. Is there anything you look for in one of these seedlings to know whether you've got uh, an interesting story idea? Uh, let's see. Well, that's sort of where uh, subjectivity comes into play. And I highly recommend to my students and script clients to, you know, make a list of all the movies uh, and TV shows uh, that they enjoy and uh, allow their own taste to be the barometer of what kind of movie they want to develop. Now, that might sound sort of obvious, but you'd be surprised how many people start writing stories and screenplays and so forth that are actually not anything close to what they actually like to watch. Um, and and the reason is they might feel like they want to express something like, like you know, ex- something from the inside out, so to speak. But I, th- and that's relevant, you know, what you want to express is important, but what you enjoy watching to me is like the other half of the equation. Um, so if you uh, don't, if you, are writing a piece that is this sort of slice of life character portrait, um, but you find those maybe not as entertaining as something that has a little bit of a genre spice, then I would, I would uh, you know, counsel folks to be cognizant of that and, and see if they can sort of marry the two. That absolutely makes sense. It's, it's great advice to follow your taste so that you're interested through the whole project too. The other thing that I would take into consideration when it comes to which story ideas are, are better um, versus, you know, worth putting the time into develop because you don't a hundred percent know until it's developed. Yeah. Um, but there's some indications which are, which ones are cinematic. In other words, which ones can be told visually, um, which the vast majority of stories can be cinematic. I would say the one, the one sort of a uh, red light, issue would be if the story is a hundred percent dealing with internal obstacles. In other words, uh, in, in, inside the character's mind. And, uh, often those kinds of stories tend to work better in novels, unless you've come up with a creative way to Ill, like dive into the character's mind, like an in internal sunshine of the spotless mind. The vast majority of the movie takes place in Joel's mind. It's just that we get to see his mind. We get to see his memories. And in that case, then it works great. Um, um, if you are telling an internal, uh, a story with internal obstacles, then my advice is how do those, ma- how does that manifest outside the, the character's head? In other words, does it affect their relationships? Does it affect their job? Does it affect, you know, how does it affect their life outside their head? And in that case, you know, the internal obstacles can be really an exciting 
um, some uh, thing to explore in in cinema. Mm. Now you talked you talked about starting a story from a character idea. What makes a compelling character? Um, so again, there's some subjectivity involved in here. Uh, however, um, here are some sort of objective tools that you can use to ensure that your character has uh, what they call dimension. A lot of times you'll hear uh, feedback that says, oh, the character needs to be more dimensional. And then the writer's sort of left with a big question mark like, oh, okay, I was trying to do that. <laughs> what does that mean? How do I make it more dimensional? So here are some like concrete tools that can help. So there's, I kind of call them the three dimensions. The first is, what does your character want? And this actually goes for every single central cast member. What, what does each of the cast members want? Um, the second is, what is their methodology? What do they do to get what they want? And the third is their motivation. Why do they want what they want? And the trick is with your cast design is to ensure there's a diversity there. In other words, that the characters have different motivations, different methodology, and different wants. Every once in a while, there's a story where like everyone wants the same thing, like everyone wants the treasure. That's fine. Then just ensure the methodology and the motivations are different. So someone might use the methodology of like brute force. Someone else might be all about manipulation. Someone might use seduction. Someone someone else might use bribery. I mean, there's a zillion different tools that people can use tactics to get things done. And each character will have their own sort of tool belt. Um, and so ensure that they're different from one another. Um, and motivation, you know, um, someone might want want that treasure for to, to impress their parents. Someone else might want it so they can fund orphanages. Someone else want it because they need to, they need to feel superior to others. So, you know, motivation is another great place to find diversity in your cast. Um, and, you know, the name of the game is all about contrast. Contrast between the cast members and contrast within each character. So an example of contrast within a character would be something like, what do they seem like on the surface versus what are they like their true inner self? So an example would be this charming, um, suave, friendly person who seems like that on the surface and underneath they are really conniving or backstabbing, um, you know, social climber or, someone who is, seems like a little gruff on the outside, maybe a little mean, maybe a little tough, but deep down inside they have like, you know, a mushy center where they they really do care, but maybe they've been hurt in the past or something like that. Mm. So that, that there's that kind of contrast. And then there's also the kind of contrast between um, like characteristics such as, I mean, here's an extreme example, but um, uh, think, things that you don't necessarily think of together, like someone who might be a librarian by day and they're a ninja by night or something like that. Some sort of, uh, uh, you know, again, a contrast, something that we don't quite expect. And again, that was an extreme example for, you know, illustrate illustrative purposes. That's a great list. I could definitely see that being handy just to keep near you while you're plotting. Yeah, absolutely. And, um, you know, the truth is people come to, 
the, you know, I, I consider there to be like a spectrum of writers. I call it the uh, uh, structural writers on one end of the spectrum and organic writers on the other end of the spectrum. And everyone falls somewhere on the spectrum. Uh, uh, organic writer is the kind of writer who's able to sort of generate material and the characters talk and they, they do stuff and they move on and they interact. And then when the writer looks at it, they have this like gigantic mound of material that they have no idea what to do with. And it's just sort of this nebulous blob. And um, if they're an extreme end of the organic writer. And so what those writers need to do is they need to learn to shape things up. And on the other side of the spectrum are what I call structural writers who might be able to like in the, you know, instantly analyze who their protagonist is, what the goal is, what the turning point first act turning point is and the second act turning point. And they might be able to identify all these things. And it might be like truly structurally sound, but when they kind of end up writing it, the characters might seem a little flat or um, cardboard or robotic. So those character, those writers need to learn to flesh things out. And if you're a structural writer, you're going to pos- more than likely know some plot elements first. And it's okay then to see what the sort of, what your character at the time, we'll call them character robots are doing, but eventually you will need those characters to, to transform from just being sort of robotic uh, machinations into full-fledged characters. So then you can take a look at the, that list I gave you, which is, and, and look at each character one at a time. What do they want? What do they do to get what they want? Why do they want what they want? Um, whereas uh, uh, organic writers probably know that, like, you know, from intuitively from the beginning. Mm, that is the eternal battle between the, the pantsers and the plotters, right? Yeah, I was going to say, at the end of the day, uh, you know, every writer needs to find that balance. And no one needs to be, like, exactly in the middle of the spectrum, Um, although some people just naturally are, but if you're on an extreme side of the spectrum, meaning if you're an extreme side of the structural, uh, or you're on the other extreme side of the organic, then you're, you'll probably need to edge a little bit closer to the center by learning, learning about the other side, Hmm. you know, organic writers need to learn a little bit more about structure and, um, structural writers need a little bit more about intuition and flowing on the page and, and, um, remembering to, include, you know, uh, you know, not just the plot machinations, but also like the relationship dynamics and things that make us care about the characters. That's fantastic. I I can see how all that could add up to creating more compelling characters. That's great. So what then drives a story forward? Let's say you've got these compelling characters and you know why they're doing what they're doing and how they're going to do it and what they want. What drives, creates that narrative drive? Um, well, what creates a narrative drive in any story, there, one of at least one of the cast, the characters should be what what is known as the protagonist. And the protagonist is the character that is actively pursuing a goal or actively trying to solve some sort of problem. This does not have to be the main character. And that's where a lot of people um, are, let's say, misinformed. Um, it does not have to be the main character because there. If you want to tell a story about a passive person, and everyone keeps telling you your main character is not act, you know, active enough because they're not they're not a protagonist, then unfortunately that person will take the note, p- potentially take the notes, and and 
sort of defeat the whole purpose of what they're trying to tell. Um, or if you want to tell a character who's like reluctant or resistance in the goal, like, you know, Goodwill Hunting, for instance, in Goodwill Hunting, Will is not the protagonist. He's the main character, but he's not the protagonist. He's not the person who's actively pursuing the goal. And um, um, people conflate those two things. But one of the cast members needs to be a protagonist. And uh, that person needs to actively pursue the goal. And that's what drives the story forward. That's excellent. I can, I, I've heard about that, that the protagonist and the main character can be different. It, it's a fascinating take on it. Right. They're often, you know, in most maybe Western Hollywood movies, they're often the same character, but not always. In a movie like, uh, actually my favorite recent example is uh, Mad Max Fury Road. So a lot of people are going to assume that Mad Max is the protagonist because his name's in the title, but he's not the protagonist. He's the main character. Main character by this definition is a person we experience the movie through the, you know, we see through their eyes, we stand in their shoes. We essentially know what they know. Um, But he is not driving the story forward. In fact, he has no interest in participating whatsoever. He is literally dragged along in a car or, you know, because he's tied to a car. So the, the actual protagonist of the movie is Furiosa, the Charlize Theron character. Um, she's the one who decides to set things in motion. She's the one who wants to rescue those women um, from the evil, creepy old tyrant dude. Um, and she's the one that makes things happen. So uh, if you're going to tell a story about a reluctant person, like in Mad Max Fury Road, then by definition, the main character cannot be the protagonist. That's a great way of looking at it. So you've got your character and you've potentially got a protagonist and main character that might be in two separate bodies. Um, do you follow a particular structure paradigm? And if so, which one? Um, I, I wouldn't say I follow a particular structural paradigm, um, but I think a lot of them have merit. Uh, and... I think the notion of thinking in terms of acts is helpful. And I know there are people who sort of want to shun what they, what some call like the three act paradigm. And to me, um, you know, I think it's, I think some people just are sort of playing semantics when they do that because there's a difference between form and formula. So I think those, I think some folks who are like shunning things like that are, uh, I think they're shunning a formula, but in re- reality, it's just form. It's just what story's made of. It's, it's like trying to shun, it's trying to like make music by shunning like musical notes. Musical notes are just like whatever music you're going to make there. It's going to involve musical notes. There's no way around it. So, um, you know, an act, whether it's a short film with one scene has by definition, that's one act because there's only one turning point and, or a feature movie with three acts, you know? So, so let me define like how I'm using the term act An act is a, a portion of the story where there is a major turning point and a turning point is an action decision or revelation that sends the story in a new direction. So, Without that, if you don't have a turning point, 
then nothing's happening. And if nothing's happening, then there's no story. So like, it's part of the definition of story. Like you have to have something happen and therefore you have to have a turning point and therefore you have to have an act. Um, uh, if you had a three, three scene, uh, short film and at the end of every scene, the, there was a turning point that sent the story in a new direction it's essentially a three act short film. Um, you could have a one act short film as well. If, if you only had one, the climax is the only real significant turning point. Um, so the, and then there's like the number three, like three act, three, uh, three act structure. So my philosophy is when I hear three act structure, I just think of it as I'm assuming p- people mean it as like the a minimum of three acts for a feature film. And to me, that's a great paradigm to start with because if you're going to have a your audience sit through 90 to 120 minutes, then you better have at least three major things happening. You know, the end of the first act, the end of the second act, and the end of the third act, which is the climax. If not, if you don't have those three major things happening, if you have less than that, then it probably shouldn't be a feature movie. It should be like a short or half hour or something. Um, so to me... Uh, um, a feature storyline could have four acts in it or five acts, sure, but it needs to have a minimum of three to be a feature length, uh, you know, main storyline. I love defining the acts in terms of turning points. I think that's pretty brilliant. So this is kind of a big question, but what separates a good story from a timeless story? Um, so this again, and definitely involves subjectivity. Uh, to an extent, because it's all subjective uh, at the end of the day, like whether whether a movie is award worthy or not award worthy, when people use the phrase that movie was overrated. um, Again, it's all subjective. Um, So uh, if something's timeless, uh, and, you know, it's not always obvious at the time, ironically, there are some movies that have become timeless, even though they necessarily weren't received well when they first came out. I, um, I'm not, you know, I wouldn't call myself a cinema historian. I know a little bit about cinema history. So my, my recollection is a lot of Hitchcock stuff was not considered brilliant at the time. He was considered like, you know, like an entertainer. Um, so it's only like after the fact that people look back nowadays and look at things like uh, Psycho or Rear Window or something like that and consider it like brilliant and they utilize it as sort of examples that are still taught in film school today. Um, so, you know, there's the thought process of like what makes something universal, which is similar to what makes something timeless. And I think there's still a lot of subjectivity involved in that and things like culture and like representation and so forth play a huge factor in that. So uh, if someone were trying to write something timeless, I would, my advice to them would be don't worry about it (laughs) um, because you can't control that. What you can control is writing a compelling story that's that is actually specific um, and uh, 
something that you uh, only you can create. And I think sometimes when people aim for universal, which is sometimes synonymous with timeless, they sometimes try to go generic. Um, and ironically, that sometimes backfires because it makes it makes whomever the story is about or whatever the story is like less. Um, it makes the audience less able to sort of connect. Weirdly enough, if it's really specific, even if it's, you know, like a different culture than the general audience is accustomed to, you know, sometimes, uh, you know, if it's well-crafted, the audience is able to connect to those universal themes underneath. So, so, you know, that's my thought on the process, which is ultimately you can't really control it, that element. Um, You can't even control like if people are going to like your script. So what you can all you can do is is pick something you're passionate about and make sure the craft part is sound, like the structural elements are sound, and uh, cross your fingers. I love that idea of making sure that if, you know, especially if you're trying to consciously make something universal, that you make sure it's not generic, because it does seem like there could be a tendency to go in that direction. That's pretty interesting. Right. So what's the most important thing that you've personally learned about story what's the most important thing that i've learned about uh story let's see well when you say it like that it kind of made me think that story is something that is not something that is being created by humans per se it's more like something that humans discovered um and you know, in all sorts of cultures that have been disconnected from one another, um, you know, in retrospect, looking back at various mythologies, we see time and time again, certain paradigms coming up over and over and over again, you know, in terms of certain archetypal characters and certain archetypal events that occurred. And um, some theorize that this is because story has something to do with like how the human brain works and how we process things. And it's also highly likely that the reason story was discovered and therefore utilized in the first place, like back in the day when people were forging for food and hunting and so forth, that it was, at its core, a way to express problem solving to one another. And, um, you know, to me, that's pretty fascinating. I I like how, I like how story kind of plugs into sort of this broader human, um, you know, collective unconsciousness or collective consciousness, I guess is what I meant. And an in, along with an individual's psychology, you know, the individual member sitting in the movie theater watching it. I think that's pretty cool. Um, so those are some of my thoughts on story in general that I, that I personally plug into. Yeah. It's a great point too, about how story seems to be so intertwined with the problem solving process and how almost every 
structural paradigm, no matter what you do, is based around solving a problem. It's pretty interesting. Right. Yeah. If if you're if you're trying to write a story and there's no problems that the characters are dealing with, then that's a problem. So if there's no problem, there's no story. Let's put it that way. So um, if you, you know, want to take an optimistic approach, that's fine. But that's like the end of the story. You still need to have the characters dealing with some sort of conflict, some sort of problem. Um because at its core, that's what storytelling is. It's a way for one person to share with many how a particular kind of problem is solved for better or for worse. Meaning if it's a tragedy, then they're saying this is not a good way to handle this kind of problem. Mm, that's a great point. The story doesn't start until something goes wrong. <laughs> that's great. Oh, I was just going to say that's correct. I mean, you know, every story starts with some sort of status quo the character's life is in some sort of balance. Uh, it doesn't mean their their life is good. It just means it's it's some sort of balance. And then something happens that sets it off. So this is either some sort of external event, like an incident. You know, and, um, people have heard the term inciting incident, or it could be a decision. Um, either way, it uh, it's the first fundamental turning point that gets the ball rolling, and that turning point should eventually uh, sort of have a cause and effect dynamic, which takes us through each each of the major turning points into the climax of, of the, the overall story. Yeah, that's fascinating. Well, I guess more generally, what are some of the most important story or screenwriting mistakes that a writer should look to avoid? Okay, that's a good question. Um, let's see. Well, I actually have the number one mistake now I think about it, which is not writing. (laughs) Um, you know, a lot of people say they want to write. A lot of people talk about wanting to write that screenplay or, you know, that, the teleplay or the, the book or the stage play, and then they don't do it or they do it a couple hours here, a couple hours there, you know, and then, month goes by and a year goes by and and then it's just not finished. So my big tip is to write every day. And then you might be like, Oh, well, that's obvious. If I could do that, then I would write, but, but I don't have time. I have day job and other responsibilities. So the, the rest of the sentence would be write every day for a minimum of 10 minutes. And everyone can find 10 minutes in their day, no matter how busy they are. Um, but then you might say, yeah, but how much am I going to get done in 10 minutes? And I can guarantee you this. It's the one guarantee I say in my classes or script consulting is you'll get more done than zero minutes per day. Um, and and uh, the trick is you actually have to write like for those 10 minutes. You have to actually be doing it um, versus thinking about writing um, or talking that you want to write. You have to like, literally be writing for those 10 minutes um, for, for those 10 minutes to count. And from that little kernel each day, you will get something done. So that's mistake number one, because it's really just the momentum to actually get something finished. A feature screenplay in particular is like a marathon. You know, it's not a, it's not, it's not a short process. Uh, even the quickest screenplay, it would still going to be a relatively long process. And then some more specific notes to like what people get wrong. Um, 
Well, I think organic people or often character-oriented people, their problem sometimes is they forget to have a goal storyline. In other words, a a goal uh, defined by like something external and measurable that at least one of the characters can be pursuing as at least one of the storylines. And in very plot-oriented movies, sometimes the opposite is the problem, which is they don't have a, what I call like a relationship storyline, something that can kind of build heart uh, to, you know, what's going on, something that makes us care about the characters. And the relationship, it can be any kind of relationship. It can be a friendship, a mentorship, a parent, child. It definitely does not have to be a romantic relationship. I think people are realizing now that that eventually became cliche because it was just overdone and overdone for a couple decades uh, by Hollywood, at least. So a, some sort of relationship like, um, you know, in goodwill hunting, that's a relation. The core relationship is between the uh, therapist and their patient. So, uh, you know, any, any kind of emotional relationship can work. I love that you're offering advice to both the plotters and the pantsers too, because you're right. It, it will be different depending on your writing. Style. That's interesting. Yeah. When I listen to certain, um, you know, or read certain articles about writing, I always, it's almost always geared towards one kind of writer. And I'm always thinking, well, they're completely forgetting about this whole other kind of writer. And then these whole other kind of writers, if they take the advice, they might actually, um, let's say, keep themselves blinded to what their actual issue is um, because they're following advice geared for someone who's on the other side of the spectrum. With that in mind, do you have any advice for writing dialogue? And I guess for both types of writers. Yeah, dialogue can be tricky. I mean, for some writers and, you know, with this this organic structural thing that I'm talking about, organic writers would probably uh, be a little bit more intuitive when it comes to dialogue, in fact, that might be the part that is their strength that does come out sort of naturally, potentially. Um, so for folks who are struggling with dialogue, which is a lot of, a lot of folks, um, there's a couple things, you know, a couple tips that I can offer. Uh, there is the old, you know, suggestion, which is to listen to real life people. And I do think eavesdropping uh, for for real can have its merits and I can explain which where it has its merits and I can explain where it doesn't. So listening to real life people is super helpful when it comes to uh, what's known as character voice or verbal style. In other words, like how do different people speak differently in terms of like their word choices and phrases, not in terms of like accent or stuttering or anything like that. Um, and that's super important because otherwise all your characters are going to sound the same because they sound like you. Um, so having distinct character voices is really fantastic and will help the characters, the, the, a diverse cast like pop off the page. The other thing that listening um, to real life people can help with to an extent is learning about subtext so subtext is, is important. Subtext, uh, of course, is everything that's not being, uh, all the thoughts and feelings that are not 
being stated out loud by the characters, but are, but are there. And so the challenge for the writers, you have to write subtext by not writing it. And it kind of like makes people's minds explode because how do you write something without writing it? And, um, you know, the more you listen to real life, real life people, the more you actually observe yourself in conversations when you realize that you're thinking something or feeling something that you're not stating out loud to be cognizant of when and why that is. So that way, when you get into the mindset of your character, um, you can, uh, you know, you, you're cognizant of having that experience yourself. Um, so those are the two things that's helpful from listening to real life conversation. What's not helpful from real life conversation is, uh, let's call it a, uh, being concise or writer's economy, you know, being, being able to express a lot in very few words, because even if a character is supposed to talk a lot, it doesn't mean you write for 10 pages. You know, um, my favorite example of that is in the movie Fargo, there's the Steve Buscemi character who's supposed to talk all the time and like be basically a nonstop talker, but they do it in a way that is still concise and economical in, in, in part by carrying him with a character that doesn't speak basically at all. Um, so that contrast, which I talked about earlier, is, comes into play. Um, let's see. The other thing that can be really helpful when it comes to subtext is if you discover when you're writing that all your characters are saying exactly what they're thinking and exactly what they're feeling. Um, don't despair. A, it's super common. Um, B, the good news is you know what your characters are thinking and feeling, so that's actually good. And so now you have to take the steps to, like, bury it. And how do you bury it? Well, you bury it under some sort of other topic. So, um, you know, an artificial way of doing it would be to, like, restrict yourself to the characters can only speak about, you know, grocery shopping and soccer practice. But in reality, underneath the surface, one of them wants a divorce from the other one or something like that. But they're, lit you know, by definition, can't talk about it. And you could do, you know, for your 10 minutes minimum every day, you could do a couple of like writing exercises and, and seeing how that pans out. Um, the truth is, when it comes to dialogue, it's like anything else, you just, you, you work on it bits and pieces. And eventually, you know, what you have to sort of intellectually and analytically kind of put into your writing eventually becomes more and more intuitive the more you do it. Um, the other thing that listening to real life conversation doesn't help for is scene structure, um, making sure you're, you know, the, the scene is building, um, the characters are using tactics uh, uh, by the end of the scene that they wouldn't have used at the beginning of the scene because their initial tactics didn't work. Um, so real life conversation isn't, isn't as a, let's say real life conversation is way more messy and, and meandering and repetitive and it digresses and quite frankly can be boring if you're listening to real life conversation. Like, um, and at the end of the day, uh, I recommend that you write scenes that are not boring. I love that. 
It's a great point, though, thinking about the methodology that characters use, keeping it concise, writing in subtext. That's all fantastic advice. So thank you, Jeremy, for giving us all of this varied advice across a series of subjects. It's clear you know what you're talking about. Now, with all that said, where can we find you? What's your website? And do you have anything that you'd like us to know about? Any projects you've been working on? Sure. Um, Well, currently I'm... Currently, I'm working on something that's top secret, but I will talk about a, a movie that I wrote and directed and produced um, that was released uh, last year. It's called E-Demon. It's a, uh, it's a cyber thriller. So you can check it out at all the various places that movies are nowadays, like iTunes, Amazon, Google Play, Voodoo, DirecTV, um in demand is a, a one place that getting a lot of hits. Um, it's even on things like PlayStation, which is kind of neat that like folks can watch movies via PlayStation nowadays. Um, so you know, definitely check that out. And for those folks who are looking for a script consultant, um, you can check out my website scriptweaver.weebly.com. I do script consulting on a one-on-one basis for individual screenwriters and production companies. So that's scriptweaver.weebly.com. Excellent. And I'll leave links in the show notes for all of this. That's great. Is You said you produced and wrote and directed E-Demon. Uh, are there any like quick lessons that you thought that you got out of that project? Uh, it's, it's an, uh, let's put it this way. Uh, screenwriting is a marathon, like I say, and making a movie is an even bigger marathon. So you have one marathon in front of another marathon in front of another marathon. And every, uh, so you have to certainly, uh, if you're going to produce your own work, especially if it's a feature length movie versus a short or, um, or even a play, if you're going to produce a feature length movie, then, you know, m- uh, m- make sure you a have the will to finish because it is a you know epic marathon and make sure you bring on the resources whether that's people or funding or equipment or whatever that you need make sure you you're focused on planning you know the pre-production process um, can save all sorts of, um, you know, valuable time and resources in the intense production process and make sure you budget for post-production. A lot of people forget about that part because you're, they're so focused on production, but you know, post-production is huge. And finally, if you are searching for distributors, that's the point when you have to do your research because a lot of filmmakers, they focus on the craft, which makes sense. Um, but, but at a certain point you have to sort of understand the business side of, of distribution and marketing in particular, um, because nowadays, uh, marketing is sort of the key since, you know, it's not necessarily like basically anyone getting a movie on Amazon. So it's, how do you get, how do you get people how do you get eyeballs, um, you know, to your particular link out of the, I guess, tens of thousands of movies that are out there? Like, how does your, how do you get your movie to stand apart? So in the writing process and pre-production production process, if you happen to be thinking of marketing ideas, by all means, write them down. And if they're creative marketing ideas, you know, and you have the, 
the the will and the energy left to create something, whether it's trailers or some sort of other interesting marketing dynamic, you know, you know, go for it. (laughs) So I know the filmmakers in the audience will be taking notes on that. Thank you so much, Jeremy. Thank you for joining us. And thanks for taking the time. My pleasure, Ross. Anytime. Thanks to Jeremy for taking the time to be with us here today and for sharing his writing and storytelling wisdom. You can find links to his site, social media, and his projects in the show notes. If you enjoyed the show, please be sure to subscribe and leave a positive review so that we can continue to grow and learn more storytelling tips from our special guests. You can learn more about storytelling and writing lessons at kingo.com. That's K-I-I-N-G-O.com. That's all for today. Now, let's get to work and write some great stories.